This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Nicholas James Bridgewater. Chapter 20, Part 4 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 2. 3. The Edict of Milan secured the revenue as well as the peace of the church. The Christians not only recovered the lands and houses of which they had been stripped by the persecuting laws of Diocletian, but they acquired a perfect title to all the possessions which they had hitherto enjoyed by the connivance of the magistrate. As soon as Christianity became the religion of the emperor and the empire, the national clergy might claim a decent and honourable maintenance, and the payment of an annual tax might have delivered the people from the more oppressive tribute which superstition imposes on her votaries. But as the wants and expenses of the church increased with their prosperity, the ecclesiastical order was still supported and enriched by the voluntary oblations of the faithful. Eight years after the Edict of Milan, Constantine granted to all his subjects the free and universal permission of bequeathing their fortunes to the Holy Catholic Church and their devout liberality, which during their lives was checked by luxury and avarice, flowed with a profuse stream at the hour of their death. The wealthy Christians were encouraged by the example of their sovereign, an absolute monarch who is rich without patrimony, may be charitable without merit, and Constantine too easily believed that he should purchase the favour of heaven, if he maintained the idol at the expense of the industrious, and distributed among the saints the wealth of the republic. The same messenger who carried over to Africa the head of Maxentius might be entrusted with an epistle to Caecilian, the bishop of Carthage. The emperor acquaints him that the treasurers of the province are directed to pay into his hands the sum of three thousand folles, or eighteen thousand pounds sterling, and to obey his further requisitions for the relief of the churches of Africa, Numidia, and Mauritania. The liberality of Constantine increased in a just proportion to his faith and to his vices. He assigned in each city a regular allowance of corn to supply the fund of ecclesiastical charity, and the persons of both sexes who embraced the monastic life became the peculiar favourites of their sovereign. The Christian temples of Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Constantinople, etc., displayed the ostentatious piety of a prince, ambitious in a declining age to equal the perfect labours of antiquity. The form of these religious edifices was simple and oblong, though they might sometimes swell into the shape of a dome, and sometimes branch into the figure of a cross. The timbers were framed, for the most part, of cedars of Libanus. The roof was covered with tiles, perhaps of gilt brass, and the walls, the columns, the pavement, were encrusted with variegated marbles. The most precious ornaments of gold and silver, of silken gems, were profusely dedicated to the service of the altar, and this specious magnificence was supported on the solid and perpetual basis of landed property. In the space of two centuries, from the reign of Constantine to that of Justinian, the eighteen hundred churches of the empire were enriched by the frequent and unalienable rights of the prince and people, an annual income of six hundred pounds sterling may be reasonably assigned to the bishops, who are placed at an equal distance between riches and poverty, but the standard of their wealth insensibly rose 
with the dignity and opulence of the cities which they governed. An authentic but imperfect rent-roll specifies some houses, shops, gardens, and farms, which belong to the three Basilicoi of Rome, St. Peter, St. Paul, and St. John Lateran, in the provinces of Italy, Africa, and the East. They produced, besides a reserve rent of oil, linen, paper, aromatics, etc., a clear annual revenue of 22,000 pieces of gold, or 12,000 pounds sterling. In the age of Constantine and Justinian, the bishops no longer possessed, perhaps they no longer deserved, the unsuspecting confidence of their clergy and people. The ecclesiastical revenues of each diocese were divided into four parts for the respective uses of the bishop himself, of his inferior clergy, of the poor, and of the public worship, and the abuse of this sacred trust was strictly and repeatedly checked. The patrimony of the church was still subject to all the public compositions of the state, the clergy of Rome, Alexandria, Chesionica, etc., might solicit and obtain some partial exemptions, but the premature attempt of the great council of Rimini, which aspired to universal freedom, was successfully resisted by the son of Constantine. 4. The Latin clergy, who erected their tribunal on the ruins of the civil and common law, have modestly accepted, as the gift of Constantine, the independent jurisdiction which was the fruit of time, of accident, and of their own industry. But the liberality of the Christian emperors had actually endowed them with some legal prerogatives, which secured and dignified the sacerdotal character. Under a despotic government the bishops alone enjoyed and asserted the inestimable privilege of being tried only by their peers, and even in a capital accusation a synod of their brethren were the sole judges of their guilt or innocence. Such a tribunal, unless it was inflamed by personal resentment or religious discord, might be favourable or even partial to the sacerdotal order. But Constantine was satisfied that secret impunity would be less pernicious than public scandal, and the Nicene Council was edited by his public declaration that if he surprised a bishop in the act of adultery, he should cast his imperial mantle over the episcopal sinner. The domestic jurisdiction of the bishops was at once a privilege and a restraint of the ecclesiastical order, whose civil causes were decently withdrawn from the cognizance of a secular judge. The venial offences were not exposed to the shame of a public trial or punishment, and the gentle correction which the tenderness of youth may endure from its parents or instructors was inflicted by the temperate severity of the bishops. But if the clergy were guilty of any crime which could not be sufficiently expiated, by their degradation from an honourable and beneficial profession, the Roman magistrate drew the sword of justice, without any regard to ecclesiastical immunities. The arbitration of the bishops was ratified by a positive law, and the judges were instructed to execute, without appeal or delay, the episcopal decrees whose validity had hitherto depended on the consent of the parties. The conversion of the magistrates themselves, and of the whole empire, might gradually remove the fears and scruples of the Christians. But they still resorted to the tribunal of the bishops, whose abilities and integrity they esteemed, and the venerable Austin enjoyed the satisfaction of complaining that his spiritual functions were perpetually interrupted by the invidious labour of deciding the claim or the possession of silver and gold, of lands and cattle. The ancient privilege of sanctuary, 
was transferred to the Christian temples, and extended, by the liberal piety of the younger Theodosius, to the precincts of consecrated ground. The fugitive and even guilty suppliants were permitted to implore either the justice or the mercy of the deity and its ministers. The rash violence of despotism was suspended by the mild interposition of the church, and the lives or fortunes of the most eminent subjects might be protected by the mediation of the bishop. 5. The bishop was the perpetual censor of the morals of his people. The discipline of penance was digested into a system of canonical jurisprudence, which accurately defined the duty of private or public confession, the rules of evidence, the degrees of guilt, and the measure of punishment. It was impossible to execute this spiritual censure if the Christian pontiff, who punished the obscure sins of the multitude, respected the conspicuous vices and destructive crimes of the magistrate. But it was impossible to arraign the conduct of the magistrate without controlling the administration of civil government. Some considerations of religion, or loyalty, or fear, protected the sacred persons of the emperors from the zeal or resentment of the bishops, but they boldly censured and excommunicated the subordinate tyrants who were not invested with the majesty of the purple. St. Athanasius excommunicated one of the ministers of Egypt, and the interdict which he pronounced of fire and water was solemnly transmitted to the churches of Cappadocia. Under the reign of the younger Theodosius, the polite and eloquent Synesius, one of the descendants of Hercules, filled the episcopal seat of Ptolemaeus, near the ruins of ancient Cyrene, and the philosophic bishop supported with dignity the character which he had assumed with reluctance. He vanquished the monster of Libya, the president Andronicus, who abused the authority of a venal office, invented new modes of rapine and torture, and aggravated the guilt of oppression by that of sacrilege. After a fruitless attempt to reclaim the haughty magistrate by mild and religious admonition, Synesius proceeds to inflict the last sentence of ecclesiastical justice, which devotes Andronicus, with his associates and their families, to the abhorrence of earth and heaven. The impenitent sinners, more cruel than Phalaris and Sennacherib, more destructive than war, pestilence, or a crowd of locusts, are deprived of the name and privileges of Christians, of the participation of the sacraments, and of the hope of paradise. The bishop exhorts the clergy, the magistrates, and the people to renounce all society with the enemies of Christ, to exclude them from their houses and tables, and to refuse them the common offices of life and the decent rites of burial. The church of Ptolemais, obscure and contemptible as she may appear, addresses this declaration to all her sister churches in the world, and the profane who reject her decrees will be involved in the guilt and punishment of Andronicus and his impious followers. These spiritual terrors were enforced by a dexterous application of, to the Byzantine court. The trembling president implored the mercy of the church, and the descendants of Hercules enjoyed the satisfaction of raising a prostrate tyrant from the ground. Such principles and such examples insensibly prepared the triumph of the Roman pontiffs, who have trampled on the necks of kings. 6. Every popular government has experienced the effects of rude or artificial eloquence. The coldest nature is animated, the firmest reason is moved, by the rapid communication of the prevailing impulse, 
and each hearer is affected by his own passions and by those of the surrounding multitude the ruin of civil liberty had silenced the demagogues of athens and the tribunes of rome the custom of preaching which seems to constitute a considerable part of christian devotion had not been introduced into the temples of antiquity and the ears of monarchs were never invaded by the harsh sound of popular eloquence till the pulpits of the empire were filled with sacred orators who possessed some advantages unknown to their profane predecessors the arguments and rhetoric of the tribune were instantly opposed with equal arms by skilful and resolute antagonists and the cause of truth and reason might derive an accidental support from the conflict of hostile passions the bishop or some distinguished presbyter to whom he cautiously delegated the powers of preaching harangued without the danger of interruption or reply a submissive multitude whose minds had been prepared and subdued by the awful ceremonies of religion such was the strict subordination of the catholic church that the same consecrated sounds might issue at once from a hundred pulpits of italy or egypt if they were tuned by the master hand of the roman or alexandrian primate the design of this institution was laudable but the fruits were not always salutary the preachers recommended the practice of the social duties but they exalted the perfection of monastic virtue which is painful to the individual and useless to mankind their charitable exhortations betrayed a secret wish that the clergy might be permitted to manage the wealth of the faithful for the benefit of the poor the most sublime representations of the attributes and laws of the deity were sullied by an idle mixture of metaphysical subtleties puerile rites and fictitious miracles and they expatiated with the most fervent zeal on the religious merit of hating the adversaries and obeying the ministers of the church when the public peace was distracted by heresy and schism the sacred orators sounded the trumpet of discord and perhaps of sedition the understandings of their congregations were perplexed by mystery their passions were inflamed by invectives and they rushed from the christian temples of antioch or alexandria prepared either to suffer or to inflict martyrdom the corruption of taste and language is strongly marked in the vehement declamations of the latin bishops but the compositions of gregory and chrysostom have been compared with the most splendid models of attic or at least of asiatic eloquence seven the representatives of the christian republic were regularly assembled in the spring and autumn of each year and these synods diffused the spirit of ecclesiastical discipline and legislation through the hundred and twenty provinces of the roman world the archbishop or metropolitan was empowered by the laws to summon the suffragan bishops of his province to revise their conduct to vindicate their rights to declare their faith and to examine the merits of the candidates who were elected by the clergy and people to supply the vacancies of the episcopal college the primates of rome alexandria antioch carthage and afterwards constantinople who exercised a more ample jurisdiction convened the numerous assembly of their dependent bishops but the convocation of great and extraordinary synods was the prerogative of the emperor alone whenever the emergencies of the church required this decisive measure he dispatched a peremptory summons to the bishops or the deputies of each province with an order for the use of post-horses and a competent allowance for the expenses of their journey 
at an early period, when Constantine was the protector rather than the proselyte of Christianity, he referred the African controversy to the Council of Arles, in which the bishops of York, of Treves, of Milan, and of Carthage met as friends and brethren to debate in their native tongue on the common interest of the Latin or Western Church. Eleven years afterwards, a more numerous and celebrated assembly was convened at Nice in Bithynia to extinguish by their final sentence the subtle disputes which had arisen in Egypt on the subject of the Trinity. Three hundred and eighteen bishops obeyed the summons of their indulgent master. The ecclesiastics of every rank and sect and denomination have been computed at two thousand and forty-eight persons. The Greeks appeared in person, and the consent of the Latins was expressed by the legates of the Roman pontiff. The session, which lasted about two months, was frequently honoured by the presence of the emperor. Leaving his guards at the door, he seated himself with the permission of the council on a low stool in the midst of the hall. Constantine listened with patience and spoke with modesty, and while he influenced the debates, he humbly professed that he was the minister, not the judge, of the successors of the apostles, who had been established as priests and as gods upon earth. Such profound reverence of an absolute monarch towards a feeble and unarmed assembly of his own subjects can only be compared to the respect with which the Senate had been treated by the Roman princes who adopted the policy of Augustus. Within the space of fifty years, a philosophic spectator of the vicissitude of human affairs might have contemplated Tacitus in the Senate of Rome and Constantine in the Council of Nice. The fathers of the capital and those of the church had alike degenerated from the virtues of their founders, but as the bishops were more deeply rooted in the public opinion, they sustained their dignity with more decent pride and sometimes opposed with a manly spirit the wishes of their sovereign. The progress of time and superstition erased the memory of the weakness, the passion, the ignorance, which disgraced these ecclesiastical synods, and the Catholic world has unanimously submitted to the infallible decrees of the general councils. End of chapter 20, part 4